Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We started last week this section in Paul's letter to the Church of God in Corinth where he's addressing the topic of the Lord's Supper. If you'll remember, the Corinthian church had been making a real hash of things. Apparently there were some in the congregation who would come in to the assembly, who would rush to the table meal, eating up all of the good food, making themselves drunk on the wine, all the while shaming those around them. They had turned the Lord's Supper, which is principally a picture of self-sacrifice, of unity, and of communion, instead turned the meal into an occasion of all manner of self-serving disunity and broken fellowship. In fact, their their actions were so detrimental to the life of the body that Paul tells them that it would have been better for them to not to have met at all than to continue meeting as they had been doing. He rebukes their selfishness. They're using the Lord's table as an occasion to harm the body and the particular sin of sinfully favoring the rich while despising the poor. So now having addressed the wrong ways in which the church had been using the Lord's table, today we get to look at Paul's next words where he positively summarizes what exactly ought to happen when we observe the table. So let's look at our text, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Here's God's word for us today. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when, we, when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died." But if we we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray and ask His blessing upon our time. Our holy, heavenly Father. Father, we pray that You would speak. That You would use Your Word. That Your Holy Spirit would be present and press that Word deep into our hearts. That upon hearing again of the sacrifice of the Son and the picture of it in the table, Lord, that Your church would be built up. That those who are blind would be able to see. That those who are deaf would be given ears to hear. 
that the seeds of faith would take root and sprout into new life. And in all this, your name would be made great. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We'll cover our text this morning in three major sections. First, we'll note in verses 23 through 26, the origin of the institution. Then in 27 through 32, the necessity of examination. And then we'll close with a reminder of consideration. The origin of the institution, the necessity of examination, and a reminder for consideration. Let's look at the first three verses and see Paul's words about the origin of this institution. Paul begins with a defense of what he had taught them previously about the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. It's as if Paul's saying, I'm not making this stuff up, nor am I being nitpicky here. What I've taught you about the supper is what came from Jesus' own words and example. And what were Jesus' words and example? Well, he continues. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Let's pause there for a second. Have you ever noticed the way in which Paul has used this phrase to describe the timing of the event? He could have left out that phrase entirely about being betra- the night in which he was betrayed. Or he could have said, you remember when they were up in the upper room? Do you remember the evening before the trial and his impending death? Do you remember the Thursday before the resurrection? He didn't describe it that way, did he? He brought up his betrayal. He recalled to everyone's mind the act of Judas. And as I reflected this week, I wondered why. Why would he describe the night that way? Well, I don't want to get too speculative here, but I think that Paul brought up the betrayal because of the Corinthian believers, the ones who fancied themselves very mature and discerning ones, were actually guilty of betrayal when it came to the Lord's Supper. They were undermining the whole point of the table observance in order to satisfy their own selfish desires. They took the picture of the Lord's table, which is the most tangible expression of selfless sacrifice on behalf of another. The expression of the strong becoming weak so that the weak might be made strong. The the expression of the helpless being nourished through the sacrifice of another. And they turned that whole thing on its head to proclaim the opposite. Their behavior was teaching that the weak and the needy exist to satisfy the rich and the powerful. That's what their behavior was proclaiming. They were teaching with their actions that the first will be first and the last will be last in the kingdom of God. Which we all know is the opposite of what our Lord taught. And so I think Paul reminds them of the night in which Jesus was betrayed by Judas in order to subtly point out out that they were behaving like Judas. They were seeking to indulge their sinful desires at the cost of another. And that's an important theme to which we will return later. But let's move on. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We could go to the full gospel accounts in Matthew 26 or Luke 22, but I think Jesus' words here are sufficient for our purposes today. He takes the bread, and then the text says, when he had given thanks... There is a world of theology in that statement. What do you suppose Jesus prayed to God in that moment? 
Father, I thank you for this bread, the image of my impending death. Father, I thank you for this meal, which will likely be the last piece of bread I will eat in this life. Father, I thank you for allowing me to share the table with one who would betray me. It's amazing to wonder that Jesus could possibly have been thankful to pray with gratitude, knowing full well what would come to him. And yet he did. And I think it's worthy of our reflection too. Am I grateful even for the things that are trials for me? Do I possess the maturity of faith to be thankful even for the things that weary me, the things that sift me like wheat, the things that press me? That's a hard question. But Jesus moves on. And after praying, He takes the bread and He breaks it. It wasn't sufficient to hold it up and to keep it whole. He breaks it. And the symbolism is striking, isn't it? Suffering was to happen to his body. Great, immeasurable pain, blood, sweat, and tears. And he broke the bread and he said, this is my body. This is my body. He's not saying the bread magically transforms into the DNA or the substance of his human nature, like the Roman Catholics teach. Nor is he saying that Christ's human nature is mystically present at each observance of the Lord's Supper. That's what the Lutherans teach. No, he's teaching through picture, which God has done from the beginning of Scripture. Think back to the garden. God sacrificed an animal in order to clothe sinful Adam in the garden, picturing that Adam would need the body of another in order to avoid death. Later, God provides lambs to the Hebrews, the blood of which must be painted above the doors of the houses in order that the judgment of death might pass over them. Not only that, the flesh of the lamb was to be eaten, sustaining them on their journey. And now Christ is taking the picture, the bread, and He says, this is the symbol of My body which will be broken in order that you might be nourished. My flesh will be torn in order that you might be fed and sustained. And holding it in his hand, he's separating the bread, the, the emblem, the image from that thing which is pictured, which is his body. And the implied rebuke for the Corinthians is clear as well. If Jesus is willing to give up his own body for sinners like us, then how could you Corinthians possibly indulge your body at the expense and humiliation of others. If our Savior willingly gave up and sacrificed His own flesh, how could we be guilty of sinfully indulging our own? The application extends to us as well. How quick am I to sacrifice my body for the good of others? Do I like to sweat and to work and to sacrifice in order that others might receive blessing? Or am I very quick to selfishly guard my time, my energy, my leisure, my comfort? I think Paul's reminding them of Jesus' institution in part to confront the Corinthians and to confront us. 
Selfishness among the church was not merely a problem isolated to Corinth. It's equally present today. But lest we begin to despair, there is comfort here too. He says, this is my body, which is for you. He didn't die without a cause. He didn't suffer for no purpose. He died for something, specifically for someone, for his bride, for his people, for the church, which his father had given to him. He suffered in the body that we might be forgiven. He bore the lashes and the whips and the scourging that we might be spared. He bore the rod that we might be relieved, and he suffered immeasurably that we might be forgiven eternally. That's the good news of Christ, and it's for all who trust in Christ, even the selfish among us. And let that good news thaw any coldness and self-interest remaining in your heart. Let Christ's sacrifice free you to sacrifice for others. This is my body, which is for you. He does something similar also with the cup, verse 25. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Here Jesus is pulling back to the Old Testament imagery again. Jesus picks up the cup, which presumably would have contained wine, since that was what was used during the Passover meal. We don't know what kind of wine. We could say that it wasn't shelf-stable grape juice since Mr. Welch's hadn't invented it. That was in the 1860s. So Jesus takes the cup of wine and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. If you remember back to the book of Exodus, Moses ratifies the old covenant with blood. He sprinkled the blood on the people of Israel and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Exodus 24, 8. And God is doing something similar here. He's instituting a new covenant, but this covenant would be different. It wasn't the blood of a spotless lamb from the herd that was to be used. It was the blood of an altogether more fitting substitute. Christ Himself, the spotless one, sinless in every way, bearing the fullness of human nature becomes the fitting substitute, the sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb. And His blood is sprinkled on all those who believe. That's the heart of the new covenant. This is God's arrangement whereby sinners are forgiven of their sin and counted as righteous because a righteous lamb was slaughtered in their place. And that's good news that we are prone to forget, which is why the next phrase is such a blessing. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me, Christ. We're so prone to forget the good news, aren't we? I know that I am. I forget that Christ is my righteousness, and I instead think that my performance is my righteousness. So I get proud when I think I'm doing really well. And I get depressed when I see that I'm not doing so well. Or I get defensive when anybody brings up any hint of my shortcomings. Well, they don't know what they're talking about. Or I get angry when somebody points out that I don't quite measure up. 
All sorts of problems happen when I forget that Christ is my righteousness. I begin to forget that I need the blood of another. I need the forgiveness through cleansing. In fact, in my pride, you know what I proclaim to others when I forget this? I say, this is my body which will never be broken for you. This is my blood which I'm never going to shed for you. That's what my sinful flesh says. I am me and I like me and I'm not going to hurt me or sacrifice me for you. But praise be to God that Christ did not think that way. He became the sacrifice that clothes us in our nakedness and shame, just pictured in the garden. He embraced the role of a spotless lamb, perfectly fulfilling all of the righteousness that God's law required. He willingly endured the consequences that our sins had earned, and all because of His love. That's what we need to remember. That's the message that is pictured every time we celebrate. Verse 26, For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Each Lord's Day, we point back to the wonderful ratification of the new covenant that Christ instituted that night. Every time we lift this cup together, we're proclaiming Christ's atoning, substitutionary death. Every time we share the bread in this way, we're reminding ourselves that Christ is the sacrificial lamb that will sustain us along the journey. But notice, too, that the Lord's Supper doesn't merely look backwards. It also points forward. It says you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That means the table isn't merely retrospective. It's also prospective. And to what is it looking? Well, the Lord's return. The new covenant doesn't simply address our sin and punishment. It also includes our future destiny. Christ has promised to return, to judge sin, to punish the wicked and the ungodly, to separate the sheep and the goats, and to throw the goats into eternal punishment for their unbelief. But for the godly, Christ has promised an everlasting paradise where we will dwell with Him forever, a new heaven and a new earth where sin is absent and pain is but a memory and joy is our everlasting vocation. The book of Revelation points to the the joy of that state in terms of a banquet, a feast, about which Scott read earlier. A marriage supper of the Lamb, which is Christ, who will finally and perfectly be united with His bride. That's the Lord's Supper for which we all long. The supper to which this dim table points. That's what we proclaim every time we partake. And it is this reality of looking backwards to the cross and forward to the consummation that the Holy Spirit uses to bless us in this moment in between. When we're tempted to doubt, we look at the picture of the table and we remember the cross and the Holy Spirit sustains us. When we're tempted to forget, the picture helps us to remember. When we're tempted to fear, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our communion with Christ. When we're afraid that we've failed, we're shown again Christ's indelible blood. This is the institution of Christ's Supper. It's more than a mere memory of crackers and juice. It's an ongoing memorial of Christ's finished work, a perpetual reminder of our assured destiny 
which the Holy Spirit presses into our hearts by faith. And what a blessing we have to share at the supper, and it makes the Corinthian abuses so shameful. And likewise, the necessity of examination so critical. That's our second point, the necessity of examination. The necessity of examination. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And we know from earlier portions of our study in 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian believers had an inflated view of their own abilities. They had fancied themselves quite discerning, quite able to judge. In fact, the word for discern and the word for judge here in our text come from the same Greek word. They're related, the same word group. Paul is likely rebuking them there. They thought that they were very discerning. They had failed to discern themselves. They thought that they could judge rightly, but they couldn't even judge themselves. They were specifically failing to examine how their actions were harmful to the life of the body. How their willful and unrepentant sin was damaging the church of God, which is undermining the whole point of the table. Failing to examine their actions and continuing in a pattern that was harmful both to themselves and to others. Look at verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you were ill and some of you died. Some have died, not some of you. Some of them apparently were so stubborn and willful in their disobedience that God disciplined them. Rather than God letting them continue down the path of their destructive behavior, coasting under the illusion that their sin wasn't harming anybody, wasn't doing anybody any problems, God afflicted them with the rod of discipline, with bodily suffering up to and including death. I don't think that necessarily means that they were all unbelievers somehow and or that they had transferred from God's loving care to His wrathful judgment, but I do think it reminds us that God disciplines the sons whom He loves. Hebrews 12 teaches us that. God loves us enough not to let us barrel head down down a destructive path and will, if necessary, afflict us in order that we might be drawn back to Him, the only cure for our souls. That's a warning for us to avoid. We ought to examine ourselves, lest we tempt God towards loving discipline upon us, lest we incur judgment. That's the next verse, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Right? If we rightly judged ourselves, we have no fear of judgment. It's a play on words here. If we rightly discern the sin in our lives... And respond appropriately. We don't have to fear consequences for that sin. If we seek to honor the Lord, we have no fear of the rod. But even when we feel the rod of God's discipline, it's held by a loving hand. Paul reminds us in verse 32, But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
If God wanted us condemned, He would withdraw all discipline and let us go with the world. But in His love, He puts the rod on us. We're so loved by a heavenly Father who seeks to prevent us from following the world in condemnation. He disciplines us as necessary, all according to His goodness and His sovereign wisdom. The Lord's discipline is always just, and it is always good. It is fitting to what we need. It is aimed at our flourishing. It's appropriate to our condition. It's fit for our station. He doesn't give us more discipline than necessary, but He will always give us what we need. That's the loving kindness of our Lord in His discipline when we fail to examine ourselves. But before we move to the final verses, I have one more exhortation about this examination. Some think that this passage is teaching that we ought to be perpetually and rigorously introspective. We have to sniff out any single sin in our heart and we must confess it all to God before coming to the table. We must achieve a certain measure of holiness before we can partake. While well intended, I think this can sometimes be misguided. You see, this table is a table for sinners. The Lord's Supper is for those who aren't able to be holy on their own. It's for those who trust in God as the source of their righteousness and not those who fear God as a terrible, cruel taskmaster. And so prior to partaking of the supper, do take time. Reflect. Is there behavior within me which is sinful towards others, others in the body, harming the fellowship? And if so, then you're more than free to let the plates pass so that you may be reconciled first. To borrow Jesus' words, leave your offering at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. But if you're simply aware of your sin that you've confessed to God and you're seeking to repent of, then this table is designed for you. Christ came to seek and to save the lost, and His table is designed to feed and to hold the found. If you've been found by Christ, if He is your Savior, then you have met the requirements of this table. Simple faith is all that is required, not perfect holiness. Moving on. Our final point is found in the last two verses. Paul closes with a reminder of consideration. A reminder of consideration. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul urges here the Corinthians towards proper repentance for their sin of selfishness, which would look like a due consideration of others. Instead of prioritizing self, we're thinking of others. 
says, so if you're the kind of person tempted to gobble up all the food at the meal, then maybe you need to have a snack before you come to church. The Lord's Supper and the surrounding fellowship meal that they were observing is a time for sharing, for deference, for service towards others, not a time for indulging and gratifying your flesh. And so he's assuming forethought and intentionality, which I think is instructive for us. Forethought and intentionality, particularly as it relates to the service of the body at the assembly. How many of us think ahead, are even aware that the Lord's table is ahead of us? Or think ahead about the worship gathering in general? Do we pray for the upcoming service, for the preaching of the word, for the spiritual nourishment of the body and for ourselves, for the prayers that would be prayed? Are we putting appropriate forethought into our schedules to prioritize the Lord's Day gathering and the worship of the saints? Or do I remain selfishly unconcerned? I I can't be bothered. That's our, that's our disposition. That's our fleshly inclination. Not giving any advanced thought, unconcerned about how my perhaps undue absence from the assembly is harming the body of Christ. We know that the Holy Spirit has given to each of us spiritual gifts, which we get next chapter, chapter 12. And when we're unnecessarily absent, we're actually robbing the body of the gifts that the Spirit intended for us to have. When we remain distant, uninvolved, we are limiting the functionality of the body in the way that it would properly operate. So whatever the, whatever the area, we don't want to be guilty of the same selfishness that the Corinthians were making the worship of the body, particularly the Lord's table, all about me. My preferences, my desires, my inclinations. We should reflect upon what is pictured at the table, which is, in God's good providence, what we get to do today. And the picture is this, that a spotless lamb selflessly laid down his life for the selfish. His body was substituted in our place. It's for us, he said. And the the blood that was shed was to ratify our covenant of salvation. His is the cleansing spring, a fountain filled with blood. And as the hymn writer put it, sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's good news. And so this morning as we partake, if you are like the saints mentioned in Acts 2 that were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread at the table and to prayer, then we invite you to join us for the celebration of this meal. If you haven't yet confessed and believed in Christ as your Savior, then let the plates pass, lest you eat and drink judgment upon yourself, as we have heard. First come to Christ and be united with Him and His bride and then join us at the table.
Now, as a means of encouraging us to the table this morning, I want to read to you the words of a communion hymn. Written by Charles Spurgeon, actually. It says, Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands. Points to his wounded feet and side, blessed emblems of the crucified. What luxurious food loads the board when at his table sits the Lord? This wine, how rich, the bread, how sweet, when Jesus deigns his guests to meet. If now with eyes defiled and dim, we see the signs but see not him, O may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face. Thou glorious bridegroom of our hearts, thy present smile a heaven imparts. O lift the veil, if veil there be, and let every saint thy beauties see. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer that if there be anything in our eyes that keep our gaze from seeing you rightly, move it away. Clear our vision and give us a clearer gaze on the glorious Son. Help us remember his pierced hands, his wounded side, emblems of our satisfaction, of our substitute, of our salvation. Encourage us, build us up, work among the body through these elements. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.